What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. The time together spending with someone that it took to go from an acquaintance to a friend to considering somebody a friend was about 50 hours, roughly about 80 to 90 hours to consider them a good friend and like 200 hours to be a best friend. Evolutionary biologists would argue that friendship is still about um, protecting each other and tending to each other, especially when times get tough. It's called the Harvard Adult Development Study, and they followed more than 700 men through the course of their lives. They looked at who was happiest and healthiest in their 80s. They went back and they looked at all the things about their lives that had been true, and they were able to assess what the best predictors of who would get to be happy and healthy in 80 were, and it wasn't. All right. Boom. Lydia, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. Hi, Sean. It's good to be here. Great to have you. So you talk about friendship. That's uh, your expertise, as you would call it. That's a cool thing, huh? Like to be an expert on friendship in general and and to understand how that forms around different cultures. I think a good place to, to, to talk about is to start the conversation around friendship is to discuss like how it has evolved over time. And I guess, you know, the definition of friendship is also evolving in the world of, of the internet, right? So uh, I'm sure, you know, my mom views friendship and how to make friends very differently than probably my nephew does. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that has changed and, and, and what you have learned through your research around modern friendship versus what friendship may have mean meant before. Uh, and how is it the same? I think what's interesting is how much it's the same. Um, I mean, the social media question and digital technology is a big one. So before we tackle that, I'm going to say that um, friendship itself is still very much the relationship between two people. And it's about um, having a strong, positive bond. And uh, what we know evolutionarily is actually that friendship or something like it exists in other species, especially non-human primates, but not only non-human primates. And that taught us something. So we always used to think of friendship as primarily cultural like a nice byproduct of human civilization. You know, we're all here to be with our families and, you know, humans have have always lived in groups. It's very, very rare to find anybody living entirely on their own. Um, And we needed to be able to master the ins and outs and the intricacies of, of living in a group. It's complicated, right? Like it's not just a relationship between you and, Joe, but between Joe and Sam and, you know, 
Elizabeth or whatever it is. Um, and so we, but we thought that, that evolutionarily everything had to do with family and with genetics, but we've come to understand by discovering friendship in other species that in fact, it is a big part of our evolutionary um, trajectory and that we mm. need those strong positive bonds and they don't have to be people that we're re related to or that ha or have sex with. <laughs> you know, that's often the traditional de definition of a friend is somebody that you're not related to and that you don't have sex with. Um, of course, there's all kinds of nuances, friends with benefits, things like that. But let's, you know, that's mm -hmm. one definition. But another definition now is that um, a really good friend is someone that you have a long-lasting, stable relationship with, a relationship that's positive and makes you both feel good, and a relationship that's reciprocal and cooperative so that there's a back and forth and a give and take. And all the other things we associate with friendship, like trust and loyalty and fun and companionship, all fit into those buckets. Um, and that's, you know, what that understanding gave us is a reason to take friendship much more seriously than we used to. You know, if it's not, it is cultural, there are cultural elements to it and we can, we'll talk about that because uh, in a bit, but it's also biological and it's fundamentally sort of part of our need to succeed. So animals and, I mean, it's easier to look at this in other species, but so let's take baboons and rhesus macaques, the monkeys that are best at having good, strong bonds, live longest and have more and healthier babies. So fundamentally, that's the whole goal of evolution, right? Is to, uh, is to procreate and to, mm. uh, and to live a long time and to have healthy babies that survive. And so it's kind of like there's been a survival of the friendliest. It's the best, it's not the only way to succeed in, in the world, but it's your best bet, you know, um, all things being equal, it's good to be friendly. And we see that in humans too. We see that humans, there are successful jerks out there, but we do see that humans who are good at making and maintaining friends get real benefit from that. Um, and so that's the kind of evolutionary biology wonky answer to your question. You were also asking about how relationship, how friendship has evolved more recently with the advent of big technological changes. Um, of course, the way people interact online has changed. And some people would say that it has devalued the currency of friendship. You know, the idea that a Facebook friend is as good as a, you know, a best friend in person. But here's the thing. Nobody actually thinks that a Facebook friend is the same as like right. your best friend that you grew up with, right? We know better. <laughs> and I think sometimes we don't give ourselves credit for what we understand about the differences. And there have been studies of this, like how many of your Facebook friends are actually good friends of yours in real life? And the number was something mm. like 30 or 40%. And now, you know, Facebook is sort of, is less popular with young people and what, but you know, a substitute in your social media of choice for those kinds of studies. Um, <clears throat> what is important to know is that as sort of society changes around us, and so the changes in technology are the biggest, most recent example of this, 
people do something interesting. They protect their core relationships um, and in, in fundamental ways. And so our best, our closest relationships now are people that we interact with across channels. So if you are, what I mean by that is if you see someone in person, but you also talk to them on the phone and you're on social media with them and you're, you know, you, um, you're likely to have a deeper, stronger bond than if you only interact in one way. All that said, in-person interaction is gold. <laughs> it's really, really special. There's a bunch of things that happen when we're with someone in person that can't quite mm. happen when we're interacting online. Um, I think that your point about how your, I think you said your mother versus your nephew or something, but like the generationally, it's true that there are real differences um, because, you know, my kids are sort of college age and they're friends online with a whole lot of people that they don't know very well. Um, but again, like me, I don't think that they think of those people as real true friends, right? I mean, the way they do it is different and their sort of facility with social social media-based friendships is different from my generation, but still fundamentally, they're very best friends. They want to see them in person. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a, a Dunbar, there's a thing called Dunbar's number. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, because like a German, German uh, evolutionary no, biologist, he, I want to say. No, he's, he's British. Uh, and uh, he, um, he, yeah, he came up with this, you know, catchy idea <laughs> that we, basically have 150 where our brains are capable of, of being friends with about 150 people. But not only that, mm. it goes in these concentric circles. So you have maybe five people that you're very close to, and then 15 that are your next circle out and they, um, and out and out and out. And that 150 is about the maximum. It's like a natural break point for social groups in, in human civilization. There's some debate about how accurate that actually is, but it feels right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and the point of it is that our brains are evolved to be social. I mentioned group behavior, um, but that there's a limit to how many people we can keep in our heads in a meaningful way. It doesn't mean you can't, mm. you can actually know like a thousand people, right? But how many you can have a real meaningful relationship with is much smaller. There are just only so many hours in the day. Um, and you need to put time in to actually be a friend with someone. Yeah. And you can kind of reference that with like corporate culture as well, where companies beyond probably 100 to 200 to 300, you just start to see people that you've never met before. And that, you, you know, there's a distinctive breakpoint of culture where you just don't feel like this united, small knit team. Now you're just, yeah. you know, a, a corporation. No, it's true. And one of the things Robin Dunbar figured out was that, interestingly, there do seem to be these natural divisions in, in the military and in certain kinds of companies and in um, certain kinds of societies, like Mennonite societies, I think was maybe one of them. But, but if you get to about 150, then beyond that, it seems too big. And so then they break it up into like another extra division in a company or a right. or I forget what the divisions are in the military, but they do kind of line up with this theory. And so there's something, there's definitely something to that. But I think the the really sort of um, 
uh, other piece of this that I find interesting is the starting point of the concentric circles. Most of us really only do have like an average of maybe four very, very close friends in our inner circle. And mm. those that's who we can give our time and attention to in a, in a meaningful way. And then that next ring out, like say 10 to 15 people, we might, we also feel very close to, but we can't treat them in exactly the same way as we treat those people in the inner circle. And that inner circle can be family or friends by that definition. I mean, they could be biological relatives or your significant other, but they don't have to be. And the, the, this is one of the things I think is interesting about this new science of friendship that's out there is that it's clarifying the definition of friendship. So I said before that it's a relationship with somebody that is a long lasting relationship. It's positive and it's cooperative and reciprocal. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, the science is blurring the lines about what that means because you could have that relationship with your sibling or your spouse or somebody that is just your friend. Um, mm. And those really quality relationships that fit that definition are the ones that give you the most bang for your buck um, health wise that help you stay, you know, um, that improve your well being and your longevity. And that's, that's the whole point, right? So, so it's interesting to say, well, actually, friendship should really be measured just based on quality, more than anything else. Yeah, it's interesting that you can replace family with friendship and still have that same effect, but it's still limited to that number that you said, four to five people that are in your inner circle. I wonder, I don't know if there's studies around this. I wonder if like Italian family, Ita you know, Italians that have massive families, mm -hmm. they're so close with their families. Same with, you know, a lot of Latinos. I wonder if that inner circle is taken up by less friends and more family members, say siblings or cousins that are tight knit versus external family members versus let's say, mm -hmm cultures that are not super tight are driven up by people that are outside of your family, like friends that you had in high school, or university. Is there anything around that? Like, you know, those people that are close to their family will likely have less yeah. closer friends outside. For sure. There are. Um, so those kinds of differences, what's interesting is that, um, you know, I was talking earlier about what we know about the biology of friendship uh, and the cultural differences tend to be seen more at the level of country by country or, um, you know, community by community. Um, the fundamental way that we all interact is actually the same, right? We mm. all have these, uh, well, and what I would argue in, in, let's say, a big boisterous Italian family or Brazilian family or whatever it is, um, you're still closer to some people within the family than you are to others because you know the people that you talk to the most or that you um you know sort of confide in the most or have the most fun with um but yes that it if you've got all that family you sort of have a head start on friendship with family members like with siblings because you're just together mm -hmm. all the time so you're building all that time together but it's not automatic right there are plenty of people who are not all that close to their siblings once they're adults um and uh and who so who find that relationship somewhere else um but so yes those cultural differences um do tend to um, 
there's there's there are differences country to country, like I said, and there are also and a really interesting study that um, highlighted this was that a, an anthropologist um, did an exercise where he took all this data they had, I think thirty countries. They had people do this mm. from thirty different countries, and um, I might be forgetting the exact number of countries, but. He, they, what they had to do was something called the passenger's dilemma. So that's this philosophical problem where you're riding in a car, somebody else is driving, your friend is driving, and they are speeding and they hit someone um, and they get stopped. Let's, let's say that the person doesn't die because that would be too morbid, but they hit someone and they've done some, you know, they were speeding and you know, they were speeding and you get stopped by the police. Um, do you lie to protect your friend and say that they were not speeding, or do you tell the truth? And the difference um, plots, interestingly, um, country by country. So in places like the United States and Switzerland, people are very unlikely to lie to the police and, and protect their friend. In mm. Venezuela, they were very much more likely, seven out of 10, I think it was, or eight out of 10, likely to lie to protect their friend. Um, in Russia before, well, in the Soviet Union before the breakdown of the, uh, of the, well, before the end of the Soviet Union, um, Russians were much more likely to lie to protect their friend. And we don't really know exactly why, but what, but the theory is that you can plot very, um, precisely the economic and political stability of the country against how likely people are to lie to protect their friend. And what that tells you is that places where there's more insecurity economically or politically, um, it matters more to kind of protect that relationship with your, with your friend. You, you get more, you rely more on your friends than you do on like law and order and government institutions and things like that. Right. Whereas in places mm. that are more stable, um, you do rely, you tend to have more respect for institutions and for law and order and for, you know, the greater good, right? So, um, so it tells you, this is a different element of friendship than what you were talking about, but it is one of the ways in which culturally you can see how it could be different in, from one country to another. Um, and there are countries that are much more individualistic, like the US and the West, and then more collective, a lot of Asian cultures, have more of a um, of a collective vibe going, you know, that we're all, we're all in it together, which is why they were all willing to wear masks and Americans were not, you know, <laughs> during the pandemic. Right. Um, and uh, and so there are differences there too in how people approach, um, how they think about friendship, how they approach relationships. But but what I'm saying is that on the other hand, there is this fundamental sort of biological need to connect and to belong mm. that we all have, that all human beings share, right? That part is not cultural at all. Right, there's a fundamental unity in terms of how people view friendship at the end of the day. Um, but right. there are cultural differences, like, like take for example, like I'm in Brazil, you're in the US, and a common phrase or common saying that people have here in Latin America is that people like Brazilians or let's say Colombians are kind of like peaches, which is uh, very soft on the outside. So it's very easy to make 
acquaintances, right? You meet someone at the mm-hmm. beach and you know, they, they invite you to go out super easy, but they have, peaches have a solid seed in the middle, right? So it's very hard for someone to invite you to their house, to really get to know them, to meet their family and to be one of the tight circles. Whereas what they argue is in the US are Americans are more like coconuts. You know, friendship mm-hmm. is very hard. Often people, they don't, they're not as inviting. People are very busy, especially in New York. You know, people have their own stuff to do. They have their friends already. Very hard to get into that inner circle. But once you're in, there is that sense of um, almost like this this unity of family that is exclusive because of how much work it is to get into that inner circle and to build that trust. And uh, that cultural difference, I, I find quite contrasting and, 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 and interesting. It's, it's hard to say what's better or not, right? There's no good or right answer, but... Uh, uh, and I really appreciate that like analogy that people have here around, around those differences. No, I like that. I hadn't heard that exact, um, that exact turn of phrase or that exact analogy, but I like it. And yeah, it's true. It's, um, and I hear that about other places too. There are, you know, some people will say that they have lots and lots of friends and other people really talk only about their core group as their friends and they don't use mm. that word to describe other people. Um, But some of that is also psychologists have identified um, some friendship types. There are basically three of them and we all fall into one. And one is discerning, which is that you, you know, you pick and choose very carefully and you tend to just have a smaller number of friends, but with whom you are very close. Another is um, uh, independent, which is that you are consider yourself more sort of self-sustaining or um, I'm losing the word that I want there, but you know, you, you have a harder time making new friends and your friendships tend to be a little bit more circumstantial. And then if you move or something, you don't work mm. to keep up the old ones. And then the, the other category is called acquisitive. <laughs> um, but, and it actually breaks into two. One is selectively acquisitive and one is um, unconditionally acquisitive. So, which is the idea that you're acquisitive is you're building friendships through your life everywhere you go. If you're selectively acquisitive, you still have a sort of core group, um, but you're open to the possibility of new friends and you maintain old friends and you, and then the unconditionally acquisitive people are just building big, big circles all the time, right? Um, there may be the types that are throwing big parties and inviting everyone they know because they want them all to meet each other and things like that. Um, and the discerning friendship type is the most common. Um, and I think that's, well, I don't actually know if that is true across cultures, but it's certainly the most common in the United States and in Europe because it's been tested in both places. The independent style is, um, the least common and also the least good for us because mm. those people have a harder time connecting. Right. And they, um, and now I personally am selectively acquisitive. I have a very big group of friends, but I still have a core group of people that I consider my best friends. Um, and I need those friends and I, you know, rely on them, um, all the time and they can rely yeah. on me. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I wonder like the evolution of what humans needed before when friendship was such a critical part of survival Mm -hmm. in terms of when we lived in tribes, 
a lot of the times having an ally, which is probably more of like friendship, it's almost a, uh, a form of gratitude, right? Like the fact that we can have friends without needing to think about survival or death is, is, it's a, it's a really interesting thing in modern society before I would imagine it's like either you're an enemy or an ally. It's like not, it's not like your friends. It's almost like you're either going to be betrayed by this person or you're going to work as a team in order to survive. And that's what friendship was probably uh, a form of bond of trust. Like that was such a critical part. I would imagine versus in, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go, well, go ahead. Let me, don't let me cut you off. Versus no, no, I was today, just going to say, you're saying? yeah, in contrast to today where we, we're not worried about survival, we, we have, uh, you know, most of us have, you know, a, a roof over our heads, we have a job, we have food, we're not worried about potentially dying or someone coming in to kill us or to, or to betray us. So I, I guess like what we need from friends is a little bit different, it seems back in the day. Uh, yes and no. I'm going to argue that it's more nuanced than that. So back in the day, um, we had friends with quote marks, um, allies, and they helped us do a couple of things in a group. Um, one was to defend against predators, right? So mm -hmm. the lion coming across the plane and attacking the group. Um, if you're all in a group, you're better able to defend against the lion, right? Um, it also helped us find food and forage, which is um, something that's critical, obviously, to survival. And it's easier to do if you're not in it on your own, right? Like, that's how we, we today, we all like, you know, we do Yelp reviews and things to help each other find the things we want to find, mm. right? Um, I would argue, though, that what friendship is really about, even today, is about building a kind of bench of relationships that are there for you in time of crisis. Um, it's not that all the other parts of friendship aren't great. And in fact, it's lovely. It's like the, you know, it, it triggers dopamine and other happy hormones in our brain and, and the positive times that we interact with our friends. Um, but that just keeps us coming back for more and building the relationship. But what we really need those friends for ultimately is for when the figurative lions, the lions of today, um, you know, show up in our world. And so maybe that's divorce or the, or a death or, um, you know, losing your job and, or just getting really sick. You know, you hear a lot about when people get, um, have life-threatening illnesses and their friends rally around in this very fundamental and important way. Um, and so, you know, that's not, not always the case when you're younger too maybe you have less you've had less time for trauma in your life mm. i'm not trying to say that like life is um all the bad stuff but you know it there's there are hard things in life and um and even less hard things like you know part of the reciprocal cooperative part of friendship is that there's this give and take and and a healthy relationship is not too lopsided so what tends to happen right. is that you know Right now, you might be in a pretty happy, easygoing spot in your life, but maybe you have a friend who is struggling in some way. Um, and so you're probably going to be doing more reaching out and listening. But down the road, we can be pretty sure that some, you know, the, that will switch and that you will be in more need um, in the future. And so evolutionary biologists would argue that 
that friendship is still about um, protecting each other and tending to each other, especially when times get tough. Yeah, there was a, a book that uh, Adam Grant wrote um, called Givers and Takers, I believe, or maybe just mm -hmm. called Givers. And he, he references the, the givers versus the takers. And this is really more around professional life in terms of your career right. and how you can rise and network. And obviously, like the, if you were to rate zero out of 10, zero being the takers, 10 being the most giving person, you obviously don't want to be zero or 10 because 10, someone takes advantage of you, zero, all you're doing is taking. Most smart people know that uh, unless you're in a zero sum game or like a, in a game theory situation. And the, he found that the <laughs> ideal number Sorry. that allows you to have the most success is Oops. around that eight number where um, you're giving more than you're taking, but you're also mm -hmm. not just giving for the sake of giving. So I, I found that interesting in terms of like, how do you balance that? I don't know if that applies to friendship necessarily. I would imagine it does. It seems like it's it's logically a better way to live your life and your, your build your relationships to give more, um, but have that reciprocal. Um, but no, I was just gonna say that, yes, being generous and open-hearted in general is a very good strategy. It's part mm. of what makes someone a good friend. But it is also true that we have to, um, <clears throat> we have to husband our resources a little bit. Like we only have so much energy to give and we only have, um, you know, so many <clears throat> people we can interact with um, in that fundamental important way of being really, really supportive. I think it is really important to be generous as a friend. Um, and it's, you know, one of the things we see about individuals who have the ability to make and maintain friendships are, are those who are sort of generous spirited and are, so, you know, I think Adam Grant is on to something there, whether you should always be more generous. I, I in, in friendship, I'm not sure because you also have limited resources. I mean, in in some ways we can think about our friendships, we have a certain amount of energy to devote yeah. to our friends and the people in our lives. And, you know, it would be nice to be equally giving and loving to everyone that we come across, but that's very depleting and also there just isn't enough time in the day. So the truth of it is that we do tend to prioritize. You know, that's why that inner circle of four or five really close friends get the bulk of our time and attention. And then there's sort of little, you know, concentric circles moving out. Um, <clears throat> and that's okay, actually. You know, sometimes people feel like they have to be equally good friends with everyone. And that's not actually possible. And so I think it's important to understand that that is, that is um, part of friendship is that it's partisan, so to speak. Like, you know, you mm. tend to click with someone this person more than that person. Um, and also you, you can't give of yourself in the same 100% way to everyone in the world. You'd have no time left for your work and your family and whatever else. I mean, I, I felt that before, uh, so I'm 30 right now. And I, and I feel like I'm really starting to feel this more, especially as I see friends of mine that maybe I've met through travels that I now see again after they have kids. I can just mm -hmm. think of a recent example and it's quite different. Like the amount of 
engagement and um, desire that once we once had in terms of wanting to see each other go out and all that stuff because, and I just logically think that their priorities have shifted towards things that are more important in their lives. And I think it's like, I think a lot of people have this, like this, this kind of revelation that as they get older, um, it's, it is very likely that friendships is your, your, your circle of friends or close friends is only going to get smaller as you get married or as you have, as you prioritize other things in your life. Uh, and it's hard to accept, I think for certain people, but it's kind of the reality of, of getting older, I think. And, um, I know this, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'm sorry to tell you, Sean, that there's a sort of a joke that the 30s are where friendship goes to die. Um, <laughs> really? Meaning that, yes, because people get I'm married and have kids and then they, right. But I also want to say that um, it doesn't have to be that way. So what what is what does have to change are your expectations of each relationship. So somebody mm. who is now married and has a young child cannot hang out with you in the very same way that they did when you were all in your 20s and completely unattached, and, um, and nor, nor should they. Mm. But we do make a mistake when we, we have a tendency to kind of get so busy and caught up in what feel like the top priorities in our lives, which is rarely friendship, um, that we, we, we drop it down to the bottom. And I think we do that at our peril. Um, so there's a really interesting study, and bear with me here, because now we're gonna go to the other end of the lifespan, but this is a pretty famous study, so maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Harvard Adult Development Study. And they followed seven more than 700 men through the course of their lives, from their teens and 20s all the way until however many of them made it into their 80s and such. And that's unusual in human research because you you're you have all this information about people for you know um, sixty years, and what they were able to see is that when though when they looked at who was happiest and healthiest in their eighties, they went back and they looked at all the things about their lives that had been true, and they were able to assess what the best predictors of who would get to be happy and healthy in 80 were. And it wasn't like how, what your cholesterol level was when you were in middle age or your professional success or your wealth or any of that. It was how satisfied you were with your relationships at 50. Um, mm. And now you're only at 50 30. specifically. At 50, right, at 50. But here's the thing, like 50 is still a very busy time of life. It can be, right? You're sort of you're still very busy in your career usually, and you know, maybe you've raised your kids and they're out of the house, but, but maybe they're just not quite. Or, um, and the thing is that you don't want to get to 50 and have spent no time on your friends, right? You don't want to wait and say, yeah. oh, I have time for that later. <laughs> you don't want to go through your 30s and say, I'll see my friends again in 15 years, you know, when my, when my kids are in high school. Um, and in fact, another social epidemiologist said something really interesting to me. She said that, you know, um, not focusing on friendship through the busy years of your life um, is a little like, um, well, she equated it to smoking. So let's say you get to be 60 and you decide to quit smoking. And we're going to say, that's great. 
of course you should quit smoking and you're much healthier because you do, but there will be damage that was done because you were smoking all that time. And so with friends, it's the other way around. If you have kind of neglected to sustain in a, in a soulful way, your core relationships, your core friendships through the middle of your adulthood, um, you can start later. You can say, okay, now I have time for this, but damage will have been done, right? As if you had been smoking all, all that time. Um, yeah. And this is not me saying that, uh, that it's easy when you are in your 30s and 40s and you have busy careers and maybe a family, maybe both. I mean, I have three kids, a husband and, and a, a busy career and he has a career and, you know, it's not easy. And we have the demands of elderly parents and things like that too. And so, uh, but I also always did try to spend what realistic time I could with my friends or to let them know that mm. I cared about them, right? And to prioritize them. And so I recommend that anybody who, even if you're younger and it's feeling like you just don't have time, like, you know, that thing we do where we make a plan, but then we cancel or we like, if that's you or you're the person who's like, see somebody on the sidewalk is like, oh yeah, yeah, let's definitely get together. But then you never follow up. Like, don't be that person. Like, you know, yeah. say, I can't do what I used to do, but I could do some, right? And that's what's going to get you to be happy and healthy at 80. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this also reminds me of the uh, Blue Zone study that was done where they cover uh, all of the countries and cities, particularly that have the longest living humans around the world. And the two that stood out to me were uh, Osaka, Japan, mm -hmm. and Sardinia, Italy where you could argue that in Italy, they eat a lot of carbs, a lot of pasta. It's not necessarily the best diet if you compare it to, you know, other diets that exist around the world, but they're the longest living. And a lot of their attribution uh, is the com community that they have uh, of people, even, even as they get older, even, you know, the, it's, it's so popular in Japan. There's actually a term, there's a Japanese word for it it's called moai, moai, M-O-A-I. Mm -hmm. And, um, talking about like the importance of the small community of circle of friends you have, uh, as you, as you get older. So I guess it is, it is such a big component of longevity and, uh, and, and, people living longer uh, as well, if you can uh, build that into your your lifestyle. But it is also hard, it seems, as you get older, um, there's a, a, a chart, or there's a big blog post that a guy named Tim Urban wrote called, uh, it's, it's on a very popular blog post called Wait By Why, a lot of people probably know about it. And it's mm -hmm. called The Long Tail, that's the article name. Mm -hmm. And he basically posts in visual graphs how short life is. And he talks about all of the events that have happened. So two things that really stood out is that he has a blog graph of like how often you're going to see your parents after the age of 18. And for mm -hmm. most people, by the, by the time you reach 18, you've already seen and you've already spent 90%, 80 to 90% of the time that you'll ever spend with your parents after, this is assuming most people go away for college as well. And right. with friendship, it's similar and explains why it's so hard to make friendship when you're a young adult or just as you get older and why we often have such close friendships with people that we grew up with. 
you know, in university and so forth, because we mm -hmm. spend so much time in the times in the dorm rooms in high school that it's right. so hard to replace that experience, trust, loyalty that's been built up through those times with a coworker that you might see once a day or that, or you, or another, or another friend that was introduced to you that you might text with once in a while. And it's, it's, it's hard to make new friends for that reason. Um, it is, it is, yeah. but I think it's important to point out, no, you're absolutely right. And there's a really interesting study. This guy, Jeff Hall at the university of Kansas does cool work on friendship. And he did a study, um, looking at the amount of time it takes to make a friend. Um, and mm. so they did it both with college students who were new on campus, but also with adults who had moved cities to take new jobs. And to cut to the chase, what they found was that the time together spending with someone that it took to go from an acquaintance to a friend to considering somebody a friend was about 50 hours, roughly about 80 to 90 hours to consider them a good friend and like 200 hours to be a best friend. Um, <clears throat> and you're exactly right. What you said before is that it's pretty easy to come by 100 or 200 hours of time together with someone in college, say, where you live in the dorms and you eat together and you go to class together and you study together and you party together, right? right? Um, right. It's much harder to build up that kind of time later in adulthood when you have all these other demands on you. But I think that one of the things that's important to know here is, is just to like understanding that fact should help motivate us to put in some more time with people and mm. to also recognize that we're not failing if we don't feel like we've made a friend right away in adulthood. Like it's, it takes time and you got to put in time. And, um, and that I think a lot of people sort of write it off and just say, it's too hard and I'm too busy and, you know, no, nobody wants to be my friend, but <clears throat> that's not true. People do, um, are always looking for, you know, to meet new and interesting people. And most people like us more than we think they do, actually. There's a, there's a kind of interesting psychological thing where we, we go into things feeling sort of insecure often, and then it turns right. out that, that the studies show that actually people give us more benefit of the doubt than we think. Um, and so, yes, people have their busy lives and they often have their own circle of people already. And sometimes there's just not space for someone new, but that doesn't mean that your people are not out there. So I, I sometimes say, I'm not trying to be all Pollyanna-ish about it. I really do know how hard it can be as an adult. Um, but I think that understanding the facts of it and that like that is that it does take time. And, and time alone is not the whole thing because you can have a colleague that you work with every day, all day, and you never really become more than colleagues. You don't necessarily yeah. click in that way. Um, but time is one piece of it, right? And on the flip side, we can have somebody that we really like from the minute we meet, but in order to truly consider them a good friend, we still have to put in the time, right? And so so just understanding that I think is gives people a little bit more, um, I hope it gives them a little more optimism. Um, and the yeah. other thing, thing I want to make sure we talk about are the physical, the health benefits of friendship. Um, and, and this is related to the, what I was just saying about like the effort of making friends. Um, but it's astonishing. So loneliness on the one hand is terrible for us and friendship 
is we often, we hear all the time about how bad loneliness is, but we don't think about the reverse, that friendship is actually the antidote, right? And it's giving us all kinds of health benefits. And so the right. things that friendship, um, friendship affects for the good and loneliness for ill are your cardiovascular functioning, your immune system, your cognitive health, your mental health, your stress responses, your sleep quality, even the a uh, the rate at which your cells age is slower in people who um, have more friends <laughs> than people mm. who are lonely. Like there's a little cap on your chromosome, it's called a telomere and it, they get shorter as we age and they get shorter faster in lonelier people. Um, in addition to the larger longevity thing that I that I was talking about. And so we fundamentally um, <clears throat> are healthier if we're more connected, right? And if we have mm. those couple of strong, all you really need is those handful of strong, positive relationships. Um, and so what I hope um, people will take away from this is not just, oh, like she's telling me I have to go hang out with people. And it's like, no, actually, I'm giving you permission. It's like you should schedule it the way you schedule a workout at the gym because it's that good for you, right? So you yeah. get permission to hang out with your friends and call it a workout. Like, you know, it's great. <laughs> wow, it's I, like, mean, <laughs> I worked out today. I got to eat all this sugar I want. Is that it? Yeah, no, you're like, you got to go out. Go out. See your friends. Yeah. It's good for you and it's good for them. And... Uh, this is a personal question for me, but um, I do a lot of traveling, as, as you know, like I'm, I'm in South America. And mm -hmm. the hard part about this is that when you don't have a stable base, you tend to meet people fleetingly, you build acquaintances. You add the fact that a lot of people already have their own group of friends and you move, you go to a new place, mm -hmm. you make new friends, and then you move again. And What's happened over, over the past six, seven years for me is I have a lot of acquaintances and pretty good friends, like people that I can actually call to if I need a place to stay, like that level of friendship. But mm -hmm. what's happened, I feel, is because of these travels, I don't feel like I could say I have like three or four like really, really, really best friends, especially the way people mm -hmm. talk about best friends. And... Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's on the rise and also with like remote work and so forth, but also can you also call that an antidote to loneliness if you have a lot of friends, but maybe they're not as deep. Maybe you can't share all of your vulnerabilities, the struggles, but you can go out with them. You can have fun with them and you can have that friendship with them. It's still good. It's still good to have that the group of friends that are maybe slightly more casual um, than not to have them uh, is what I'm going to say. I also think that what will happen for someone like you who's on the move like that is that you will see over time who 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 recurs in your life or who, you know, mm. um, some of those people you've met, you probably won't see much again, but some of them might sort of return in interesting ways. I mean, my family, we lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years when my kids were younger and and it was such a transient place, workplace, right. right? People would come for two or three years and then they would leave. And and literally when you left, you sort of felt like you were saying goodbye, have a nice life, <laughs> you know, even though yeah. you had had this intense couple of years of all being together, living 
living in the same place, the kids all in the same school. Um, but some of those people I still am in touch with. A lot of them, not so much, but but some of them I am. And there are sort mm. of people that sort of keep coming back. Um, it's I, I'm still going to say that if like I have my choice for you, it is that there is at least one person out there that you feel more deeply connected to. Um, and, you know, that that's a that's a great thing. But actually, there's really interesting research, too, about um, what are called loose ties as opposed to or weak ties as opposed to strong ties that and that they can be very, very powerful for us, too. So I think you on some level, you have to sort of take what you can get in your life to <laughs> yeah. have it set up. Right. Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you're you're getting other benefits by by moving around in the way you are right now. But presumably that won't last forever. Um, <clears throat> and you need, uh, um, I don't know, you, you, I mean, I think it's, it keeps us, it keeps us sort of young and fresh in a way to be constantly meeting new people and open to yeah. the possibilities of that. Right. And so that is one of the things that like weaker loose ties get us is like, they keep us from being stale. They keep us um, informed about other opinions and about, you know, um, or just about like where there might be a great apartment or a great job. Like, honestly, that tends yeah. to come from somebody you don't know as well. It's not your very best friends, like providing everything in your life. So there's value to all of that. Um, but I would say that it's worth it for someone like you who's on the move to make a little bit of effort. If there is someone that like you grew up with that you feel really can close to or were like just to check in even just once a year or twice a year, or, you know, when you go back home, wherever you grew up, if, if your family is still there and like to call that person. And sometimes we don't right. because we kind of assume that they don't really care to hear from us or. That's um, what I assume, know, right? It's like, it's been yeah. so long and so, you have instances yeah. where sometimes it doesn't work out, right? Sometimes they don't want to meet you, right? So you, you, you right. kind of have that and, vulnerability. Okay. But you don't know unless you try, Sean. You do not know unless you try, right? And and that's what I'm saying is, so actually, thank you for bringing up vulnerability. In adulthood, time is one big factor, but vulnerability is the other thing. And we are mm. afraid to make ourselves vulnerable, but friendship does require a certain amount of vulnerability. It, it means putting yourself out there and expressing some interest in seeing someone or being and being friends with them, right? Or continuing a friendship. And you know, some of those people, it's kind of amazing. You, you, um, you see them, you know, and you, people always talk about relationships where you can just pick up right where you left off, right? As if all those years in between hadn't, hadn't gone by. And, yeah. um, and other people, it just, if you don't see them all the time, it just sort of loses some of its, luster, right? Um, but I, mm. I mean, I'm a lot older than you. I'm in my 50s, but I actually have had, it's been interesting now. So some of my closest friends today are women that I went to college with, but they're not the people I was absolutely closest to in college. They're people that I got mm. sort of reacquainted with more closely in my 50. When we all turned 50, we all went on a big weekend away. And, and there was a couple of people that I spent a lot of time talking to and we ended up sort of being accountability buddies so that we were writing, emailing each other every week. And once we were doing that, even though we lived on opposite sides of the country, we stayed really, we got really, really connected. And 
And it's kind of like my joke is that it's like going shopping in your closet and finding a sweater that was down in the corner that you haven't worn in years and years, but like it actually looks great on you. (laughs) And Uh. so like some of those old friends can come back in lovely ways. Um, I think we just need to make ourselves open to the possibilities, be a little vulnerable, also understand that it isn't all going to work. So don't, don't, you know, don't try once and then say, oh, forget it. Nobody wants to be my mm. friend. Right. Like, but, you know, be intentional about friendship. Yeah. And it's, I, I imagine for you, it, is it because maybe your values have changed or your situations have changed or they've changed where maybe before it just didn't align, but now that you're at a different stage in your life, all of a sudden the pieces click and you just are yeah, more I, don't, I don't know. I, it's harder for me to say why we weren't closer then, although part of it was just like that our core groups of friends in college were slightly different. And so we were, we were friends in that larger circle, but not, you know, individually. And now one of the things that happened was that like these particular people, um, we have a lot in common in that we are all kind of creative. We work in creative things. And that was why we wanted to be accountability buddies, right? To say, okay, right. I'm a writer. One was an artist, another writes fiction. And it's like, okay, let's, let's keep in touch. And let's, you know, say, cause we all work for ourselves. And um, so we had something in common there. We had things in common with aging parents. We, yeah. Like now at this moment in time, we found these points of connection that, that felt um, important and, and helpful. Like, you know, it's nice to talk to someone who's going through the same, some of the same things that you are. Um, And so, uh, you know, you, yeah, you gravitate to that. Yeah, it's it's a tricky balance, I feel, because (laughs) as I said, around the blog post, around the long tail, where it's really tough to build that same amount of trust, loyalty, and, 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 um, you know, that bond that you had with people versus in, in college versus maybe in your 30s or 40s, when you don't really know that person that well, and you don't have time to spend that much time with someone. But at the same time, I would imagine a lot of people that you grew up with in high school or college, you don't have the same values, perhaps, or the similar um, goals or lifestyle or, or, you know, all these things can change so much that in some sense, like you're sacrificing compatibility with trust to bond that friendship versus the newer people, you probably have a lot more in common with them because you're a very different person and you're selecting those people that are more fit to you, but you don't have that trust. So it's like, well, it is that build balance. That trust. Yeah. But no, I, well, you're on to something here that I think is important. And, um, and that is that sometimes we assume that the people with whom we have the most shared history, like that we go back the farthest with should be the closest people in our lives. But shared mm. history only gets you so far. And I, you know, I can't tell you the number of people because I give a lot of interviews about friendship. I give a lot of talks about friendship and people will come up to me and talk about an old friend that they see all the time, but who they find draining every time they right. leave. They're like, Toxic oh, friends. You know. <laughs> it's like, that's not a good thing. And just because this is your, was your close friend when you were teenagers, doesn't mean that this person has to be your close friend today if you find this person draining. Right. And so, yeah. um, so I say that the, the really core friends in life should be the people who sustain you the most. Mm. And that's the goal. I'm not saying that you, 
you know, just immediately cut out anybody else. But it's almost like in your own heart, you know, who sustains you and who drains you. And you should Mm. focus on the people who sustain you. And, um, and maybe it's just a question of shuffling where people are on those concentric circles I mentioned, like you don't have to announce to someone, well, you're no longer in my inner circle. That's, you know, that's not so cool, (laughs) unless they're truly toxic, and you really just want them out of your life. And you know what? That's okay. If you need to do that, that's also healthy. But you do need to put somebody else there, right? It should be somebody that makes you feel good. So, you know, that definition I gave right at the beginning that biologists have that that a a good friendship is a long lasting um, one, it's positive, it's reciprocal. That also gives us a guide to how to be a good friend. And it means to be a steady, reliable presence in someone's life. Like, I mean, in your case, that's hard when you're traveling around, but you can do it by just kind of like sending a message every once in a while or saying, hey, dude, thinking about you, even though I'm in Brazil, you know. Um, So being a steady, reliable presence and then being positive means like making people feel good. Um, And, you know, you should feel good, too, in the relationship. And if you sort of most of the time don't feel good after you've interacted with someone, then that's not so great. Right. Um, And that can mean like being kind. It can mean being appreciative, telling your friend what you enjoy about them or, you know, giving them, congratulating them when good things happen to them. And then the reciprocal cooperative part we, we touched on before, but it is about a kind of balance, a give and take to the relationship and, um, and not always, making sure that you're not doing all the talking and the other person's not doing all the listening or vice versa, right? Um, one of my best friends who, by the way, I met when I was uh, an adult working um, 30 years ago now, not maybe not 20, so almost 30 years ago. Um, we have a tradition when we get together that's always like, okay, give me your headlines. <laughs> and then we take turns. It's like, okay, let me hear your headlines. That way mm. we're sure that, you know, each of us gets a sort of a chance to kind of report the big stuff going on in our lives. And then often one of us needs more, you know, one of whatever those headlines are need more attention from one of us than the other. And, um, and that's fine. But the point is kind of that there's always going to be a give and take and that you're checking in at all times to make sure you're not missing, you're noticing what's going on with your Mm. friend. So, you know, that's how we be a good friend. And that's a really important part of friendship is not just what we expect from other people, but what we give out to the world ourselves. Yeah. You do that in person. Like you have, you just, you meet up and you talk about your three or four things. Either in person or about. on the phone, depending on whether we can, um, you know, depending on where we are and whether we can um, get together for dinner. We do do, she and I have dinner together um, pretty regularly, um, but we'll also do it on the phone if it's been a little while since we've actually seen each other in person. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a lovely, like it feels And there's definitely been times where one or the other of us is in more kind of crisis or more, you know, um, and so it skews. But the point is that over time, it comes out in the wash, right? And even when one person is in crisis, you're still checking in a little bit to say, don't let this be all about me. Just let me check in, you know, is there anything, what's going on with you? Like that kind of awareness of the give and take is really healthy and emotionally mature. It's a lovely mm. way to be. And we could all do do better and do more of it. Yeah, when I think about and break down kind of what develops into a solid friendship, 
that can last. I almost don't think that time, I feel time is obviously a necessity, but when, when Tim Urban talks about like the amount of time that you spent with friends will certainly outweigh the new people that you've just met. But I think about like hostile experiences in my early twenties, like they call it the mm. hostile effect where like you spend <laughs> a weekend or a week in a hostel with someone and have all these experiences, you're super vulnerable, mainly because you don't really know, um, there's no, it's a blank slate, right? They don't know you, you don't know them. You can just mm -hmm. share whatever you want. You might not ever see them. And oftentimes like you feel as close, if not closer than some of the friends, you know, some of the acquaintances that you've known for years. And it's, um, and, and, and I wonder if there are, I don't know, I don't wanna use the word hack, but like strategies that can help accelerate that bond and friendship it, with people that you really want to connect with. You know, I, I, last year I went on this um, Jaguar photography trip and it was like a slog, you know, it was so hot and we had to share bedrooms with someone. Uh, but I got so close with uh, one of my friends that, um, and I've only known him for, for a week. And I think there, <laughs> there, there's something around like, instead of just going for drinks with someone, have certain experiences that can allow you to form those elements of friendship, which is probably like vulnerability, trust. You know, we were in a dangerous place. So we were like, it was us against <laughs> the Jaguars in some sense. <laughs> there's some bond that you form. And, and, and I wonder if there's something to take away. Uh, you know, if there's a friend that you really want to build a kinship with, don't just go for dinner where it's like a safe place where you're not really, you know, maybe there's vulnerability mm. in that in that sense, but there's like experiences you can have where you can, you know, that's like, you'll never have a form of a bond. Like soldiers have a form of bond where astronauts have a form of bond that you just cannot replicate in the normal life because of the hardship they went through. It's definitely true that the intensity of an experience can sort of cement the bonds faster and more intensely. So you're right. Like, people who serve in the military together, that that is um, what they go through and experience together is extreme. And that does tend to create these really, really strong bonds. Um, and you're lucky if you get those opportunities, they're not so easy to manufacture. Like, I'm not going to say that you have to go out on safari in order to become really good friends with someone. But you're hitting on something. So one thing we know about children, but it's also true of adults, is that the way kids make friends is essentially because they hang out together and they often do things together. And then in the sharing of activities, sometimes there will come a, a deeper emotional experience. So let's say, you know, you're 10 and you're all on the soccer team together, but then you have amazing season and you win the championship and you feel... Mm -hmm more bonded right um or uh in the, but the same and the same thing is true of adults i mean there's a little bit of a stereotype about sort of women do friendship face to face meaning that they talk 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 one-on-one -on -one, and men do friendship side by side they do things together they play sports or watch sports or sit on bar stools or fix cars or whatever it is and you know there's truth to it and also not but um it is true that like women by talking self-disclosure really is a path to more intimacy. Um, mm. But men can get there too. And I think cu culturally we give men short shrift. We say they sort of suck at friendship, but 
They don't all. I have three boys. I don't have any girls. And my boys all have incredibly strong friendships, right? Um, yeah. And it's part of the difference is your expectations for it. So men do not assume that they are always going to start in by like sharing their deepest thoughts and emotions. And that's okay as long as you're sort of on the same page. But ultimately to really get close, you do need to do some of that. Um, and there's an interesting um, study that was done at Stony Brook University years ago, and it was really about romantic love and what they needed to artificially create intimacy between strangers in the lab. So they created this thing, maybe you've heard of it, the 36 questions that lead to love. Um, mm. And it works, like one couple actually got married after this thing. But so the questions are a series of increasingly intimate questions and you take turns. So one asks and one answers, and then you flip and you go the other way. Um, and people, and people have studied this, not just for romance, but now they've used it as a way of studying whether you can make people better friends. Um, and you can't by doing that. So that does tell us that something about self-disclosure and intimacy and, and trust um, really does matter. But you don't always have, you, you know, you're not necessarily going to get there artificially. Sometimes that you have to get it kind of along the way. You were lucky in your activity with your friends. Um, I do think it, you're right that like doing different kinds of things with people can be great. Like, so going hiking or, um, I mean, during the pandemic, right. lots of people started walking and hiking more with, with friends and found that that was actually a great way to interact. If it wasn't something they had been doing before, a lot of people I know have kept it up. Right. Um, mm. cause that's healthier too, than just always going for a drink or, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, so I, uh, I, I think, looking both for activities, but also looking to share a bit what you feel comfortable with um, is a good idea. And actually, as a bonus, if people go to my website, <laughs> LydiaDenworth.com, and you sign up for my newsletter, you can get a copy of the 36 questions um, as oh, a sort cool. of bonus thing. And so you can use that with your friends or your new friends to see um, if you can deepen your relationships. Nice. Yeah, I was going to ask what those 36 questions are. But there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I there think it's a great go. place to end here, Lydia. Um, where can we take people to? I know you've got your book, obviously, Friendship, your website. Um, we'll have those links down. Uh, where, right. where is that? Is that the best place to pay, take people to? Yeah, the website is kind of the ground zero. <laughs> and so it's LydiaDenworth.com and all the links to my social media. But I'm at Lydia Denworth most places in social media and Instagram and Twitter and all that. Um, and yeah, the book is Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. And it's available all over the place. Uh, and I hope people will go check it out because I think that we could all, um, we think we know a lot about friendship, um, but there's always more to learn. And actually, I think you'll be surprised. Um, by, yeah, I think you know, we scratched the, the surface. Of, yeah, exactly. So, but thank you so much, Sean. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Till next time.